Well, I call it the cloud self, you know, because there's your physical self, your tangible self, but then there's this nimbus of data. Your cloud self can often remember exactly what you were having for lunch 15 Tuesdays ago because delivery.com sent it to you. And I can probably just tell you that it was Indian food yeah. from the place on Bedford, but yes, yeah. I understand your But point. you know what I mean? It's like, so, so there's a flood of information. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. I first became a fan of Farai Shadea when she did this series of radio specials during the 2010 midterm election. I remember when she traveled to Florida to interview residents of a community that was feeling the effects of all of the forces swirling that summer. The rise of the Tea Party, the lingering foreclosure crisis, and in retrospect, some of the signs of the racial conversation that has come to dominate our current political cycle. And she did it as Farai always does it, with sensitivity and humor and personality. So it's really exciting that Farai now works here at 538, writing a regular column and keeping her eye on the upcoming election. So on today's show, a sort of introductory conversation with Farai Shadea, who will also be a regular, I hope, on this podcast. But before we get to Farai on how she thinks about data in society, one data point that caught our eye in the news. It's the significant digit. Excuse me. Excuse me. Do you have a sec to talk to me? Any chance? Can I tell you a number? Okay. And so you, we can do it under the... You can wait out the rain while you talk to me. Okay. Um, so the number is 400, which is uh, in India, Google is partnering to provide free high-speed Wi-Fi at 400 train stations throughout India. There are a lot of people in India, so <laughs> although 400 sounds like a large number, I'm not sure how that really equates... I think that's a part of an effort in a lot of countries to make Wi-Fi, free Wi-Fi, more accessible. And I just wonder what you think about the state of Wi-Fi here in the U.S. What I heard recently is that I think 80% or 90% of the households in the United States have access to Wi-Fi. Look at you bringing the stats. Usually that's me, but nice work. Um, So I think it's very important that Wi-Fi is available um, to all citizens. Should Internet be like a public utility? I think it should be, but I don't know the powers that be would necessarily agree. And for a little more on this story about uh, Wi-Fi in India and Wi-Fi as a public service, uh, Richie King, visual journalist here at 538, is here with some more context. That woman, by the way, Justine Evans. Richie, can you do a little fact check on that stat she cited? She said about she thought like 80 to 90 percent of people in the United States are on the Internet, have connectivity. Yeah, so according to the International Telecommunications Union, which is um, part of the UN, as of 2013, uh, about 84% of the U.S. population was on the internet. So yeah, so that that's that's spot on. Good job, Justine. So, look, but like, how does that compare to to other countries? Is the U.S. fairly wired? So I would say the U.S. is fairly wired. You know, I sort of i I started looking at some of these numbers, and my my initial uh, suspicion was that the U.S. would rank really, really low because people talk about how surprisingly terrible um, our connection to the internet and internet speeds are here. But um, but we actually we actually do quite well. Bloomberg has kind of compiled this aggregate measure that looks at you know access to broadband, both um, both you know in homes and and mobily, and you know we rank we rank 13th. Um, the countries that we're behind are you know 
technologically very sophisticated and also very wealthy. So, so going back to this story uh, in India, which is really about public Wi-Fi, free public Wi-Fi, and you can probably guess from the exchange we just heard what I think is interesting in this, which is this notion of thinking of the internet as like a public utility or public service. Yeah. So actually, New York City is 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 thinking about that, and and there's this plan to uh, to convert old payphones into into free public Wi-Fi hubs. You know, in the U.S., it's it's almost like you know, most people have internet access. So public Wi-Fi would just be this kind of nice nice thing right. to have. But for a lot of people in India, part of the plan there is to actually get people on the internet who aren't currently using mm-hmm. it. I mean, their train system is is humongous. There are over 7,000 stations. It's like how people get around the country. I was just reading that like 23 million people travel through it every day. You know, having free, truly high-speed Wi-Fi would really be a way to to get the nearly a billion people in the country who aren't currently using the internet to actually to actually start start using it. Um, Richie King, visual journalist at 538, thanks a lot. Thank you, Jody. Farai Shadea is here in the 538 podcast studio, one of my favorite reporters for a long time. And usually I say, welcome to 538, and I'm doing it kind of like as the host would do it to say, you know, welcome to the show. But I'm saying welcome to 538 as in you're one of us now. Welcome to 538. Yeah, Jody, this is great. I'm really excited. And we're really glad to have you on board. Yeah. So I have known your work for a long time and I know you, I think, mostly as a journalist and a storyteller and someone who I think is really good at bringing people into your reporting. I mean, you care about people's stories. So why data? Yeah, I mean, it, data is is something where I, I, first of all, don't believe that data should be something that's isolated from the rest of the world in the same way that computers aren't isolated from the rest of the world. You know, we have computers in, you know, little tiny computers and toothbrushes these days, you know, so. Your so, toothbrush has a computer? Uh, it has at least some form of digital intelligence that allows Amazing. it to electronically brush my teeth. You I know? need to up my toothbrush. I, I think you do. Right. You're, you're still analog. <laughs> um, but I believe that combining reporting about people and how they process the world and and combining that with data-driven reporting is really a way to take a, a really beautiful, deep look at our society right now because everything is both digital and analog. Data comes from somewhere. It comes from our analog lives. So I don't see data as separate, but I think that the discipline of understanding how to write about data is its own thing. And I was lucky enough to be approached by The Intercept to do some mm-hmm. data reporting for them. And it was really interesting to try to find the human angles on data-driven stories, whether it was about medical privacy, um, large-scale data breaches, cyber espionage, all those different things. And, and I think it's prepared me to dig in here. One of the things you wrote about at The Intercept, and, and, and it's clear that you're, you're thinking about, is when we think of the downside of, of data and data breaches and the way that data can be manipulated and, and have effects on real people's lives, you write about this notion of the indefinite threat of future harm, as you put it, and that when there's a data breach, it's actually kind of hard for people to get their heads around what does that mean and how does that actually affect me? 
Yeah. I mean, I give the story of Benjamin Nuss, who is four years old and who had a data breach as part of um, the Anthem Mm -hmm. uh, breach, which involved a lot of different healthcare data. And this is when social security numbers were. Yeah. Social security numbers, um, you know, full names, you know, birth dates, you know, those three things, the social security number, the full name, the birth date and the birth location as a bonus, that will give you a skeleton key for identity in many different systems. Um, so when you have this little toddler who, you know, was hacked or, or whose data was breached, the rest of his life, his parents and then he will have to examine all of his records to make sure that no one is falsifying his identity or doing identity theft. And the reality is that more and more, most of us will have to do that. Even if we don't think we've been compromised, we may have been and we may not know it. But, you know, but the future harm to this preschooler of the data breach that occurred when he was a toddler, it could happen when he's 15, 18, 25, 60. This is not to diminish people who, you know, have had their identity stolen now and have had i mean there are real stories of very concrete examples but for the vast majority of people in this anthem breach for instance it's this amorphous thing like okay my data is out there it's floating around it could end up in the wrong hands so i have two reactions to that which is one that's incredibly scary but then the other is okay so what like if there aren't mass examples day after day of people actually being harmed by these data breaches then maybe that's just the kind of new reality that we're living in. And my social security number isn't as private as it used to be. And so what? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that we have to keep breathing and we can't run around ripping our hair out. But, um, for example, with the social security number, part of the problem is that it's used both as an identifier and as an authenticator. So in some cases, your social security number is kind of it's like on a list, like you've enrolled for classes at a college and, you know, your social security number is what keeps one John Smith from being the other John Smith. And in other cases, it's something you use to log into a system. And it's like this, you know, it's like a password. And as as many data scientists have pointed out, using the same thing in different circumstances as a username and a password is a recipe for disaster. And so instead of freaking out about data breaches, we need to ask, what are the structural issues in our society and in the way we use data and identify human beings that could be changed. So maybe we need to change the way we use social security numbers. You know, so I know you're writing about this yeah, for 538. Yeah. Maybe the piece will be up by the time this podcast lands yeah. or not, but it'll be there soon. But do you have a policy response? Do you have a take on this? Well, I mean, it's not for me to do a policy response, but I certainly think that, um, you know, there are kind of two main vectors. One is let the private sector figure it out with some help from the public sector, but move away from you know, most uh, simple alphanumeric identifiers and move to encryption, you know. So instead of us having to remember passwords, like basically anything that can be remembered arguably can be easily hacked. Like any any hacker worth his or her stripes, unless you're someone who has a photographic memory, you're not going to be able to remember a sequence long enough and complex enough to log into something like, you know, that's why you, you remember yeah. with the Ashley Madison, like so many passwords oh, were like one, two, three, or, you know, like ridiculous. Oh, no, the best were those passwords that were like, I can't believe I'm doing this or don't tell my wife or <laughs> yes, whatever. Yes. And who knows if those were fake or not. But, yeah. but that was that Ashley Madison but, thing was just like such a fascinating data set. Absolutely. But, yeah. but, you know, but so many of us, including me, like I have, 
Um, and I will not reveal who it is, but there was a guy who I had a crush on freshman year of college. And that's when I got my first bank card and I used, um, his, his nickname uh-huh. as my bank card, you know, like pin. Sure. And I've kept that pin forever. Right. I, I've never changed that pin. I've changed banks. That's pretty stupid. I probably should change it, you know? So it's, it's funny. It's, I, I think what you're kind of saying is that we're living in the data age. We're creating all sorts of data. That data is likely to get hacked. And the place where the answers maybe lie and the protections lie is the fact that a single piece of data shouldn't be allowed to be this wormhole to all this yeah, information. Exactly. It's about the cross-referencing and about, and that's the sort of security angle. Like right. Not so, the, so, yeah. we need to stop every breach. Obviously we can yeah, try we and do that. We can't stop every breach. But it's more about, okay, what happens when information wants to be free? Then what? Right. So, so one is like this kind of private sector driven, like let's innovate new ways of people logging in and authenticating, often using encryption or or cyber keys or, or things like that. And another one, another proposal is just like have a regulation, and this is specifically about the social security mm-hmm. number, like have a top-down federal regulation saying that at no point should the social security number be used as part of a login sequence. A bank or whatever should never ask you for the last four digits of your social. And so that's a top-down policy solution. And those are two different ways of approaching right. the same problem. We started the conversation, you talked about how we live our analog lives, but they're more and more infused with data. So let's talk about that. And, and you, in one of your intercept pieces, posed this really fascinating thought exercise, which has been rattling around in my head since I read it, which is imagine that a buzzer goes off every time you generate a piece of data throughout your day. Mm-hmm. And as you point out, you would be hearing that buzzer all the time and Absolutely. probably in some unanticipated moments. Absolutely. You know, I mean, everything from if you're wearing a, a Fitbit or some other kind of fitness tracker, there'd be buzzes going off all the time. But your data also, your data is is kind of like a pet or something, you know, like it might be yours, but it also has its own life. So you not only have the data that you're generating in the moment, like say you're swiping your credit card or you're wearing your Fitbit, your data is also producing its own data. Right. And so (laughs) most people would not be surprised that a buzzer would go off when they like swipe a credit card. But you point out, for instance, you like something on Facebook. Right. And you think, okay, that's a one directional thing. I've liked that thing on Facebook. But then you log out of Facebook and all of a sudden... Facebook is taking that one piece of information right. and cross tabulating it and finding Absolutely. other and building a sort of social graph while you while you sleep or right. while you go walk outside without your phone on you or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and and some of the advances that Facebook is making in terms of, you know, um a patent it's defending that could be used to do predictive financial analytics based on your friends. Um and Yeah, so you wrote about this. So 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 yeah. explain that a little bit. Yeah, so basically um, there is evidence, um, from, from studies done by, you know, a business professor and others that, that your online social connections can be used to help predict your financial outcomes. And so if you have a bunch of friends who are deadbeats, you probably are more likely to be a deadbeat, to put mm-hmm. it that bluntly. And if you have a bunch of rich friends, you're more likely to have wealth. But 
there are also many ways in which your online cohort is not like your real cohort, you know, that you have all these people who it's like somebody's second cousin who you met at a wedding asks you to friend them and you don't want to be rude and you friend them. So does that person's association with you online then reflect a legitimate you know, understanding of what your social network is. But but this is not something Facebook is doing now, but it has a patent that it acquired in purchasing another company um, where there's some pretty detailed schematics mm-hmm. and, and outlines for using social networks for predictive financial analytics like lending. So a potential lender or a bank would look at your Facebook graph to yeah. determine whether you're a reliable person. And, it and it could in the future. Right. This, this is a, a possibility. And, um, you know, the the thing is, I mean, Facebook, there's a reason why Facebook is one of the most powerful companies in the world. It is not just a social network. You know, I mean, of course, it's purchased Oculus Rift, but it's also purchased many other companies. And in some ways, you know, you could argue that it's evolving to have capabilities that are similar to um, the NSA in the sense of advanced, advanced facial recognition, which mm-hmm. is something they have been doing research on and publishing that research um, to be able to recognize people from back of the head shots, side of the face shots, as well as frontal face shots. And then also this, you know, this patent on predictive financial analytics. These are possible futures for Facebook. I'm not saying that this is what will happen, but it's very clear from the kinds of data that they are releasing about what they're doing. Right that they will have incredible capabilities to not only deal with you as a social animal, but as a financial animal. They're being subpoenaed many times in legal cases. Um, so your social graph, what we think of as your social graph, is actually also a criminal justice graph. It's a financial graph. It has many implications. But if you think about the lending question in particular, and I know mm-hmm. you're saying that it's a possibility. It's not right. happening right now. But if you think about the way that those decisions maybe were made in the past, mm-hmm. particularly for people who you know were coming from a disadvantaged socioeconomic background or whatever, I mean, those decisions were already biased and skewed and and unfair to begin with. So, would you rather have a bank using you know their notion of what someone looks like uh, to make a decision about whether to lend them money, or something that that has a little bit more of rigor and, and analytics to it. Well, but see, the thing is, it's like data is only as good, first of all, as, you know, it's the garbage in, garbage out. So sure. first of all, is the data actually good data? And then secondly, how do you interpret the meaning of data? So let's say, for example, I had a case where I had a student who was draining her own financial resources to help a family member in financial distress, which I'm sure was putting a temporary low on her financial viability because she was really pressed to the wall to help this other person in her family. Does that mean that she's not a good prospect in the future? You know, this is someone who's going to get a, a, a degree with honors and go on and lead her life. But, you know, many people who come from backgrounds where, They are, no matter what age, whether they're younger or older, they're sort of expected to help out people around them. It doesn't mean that they're not credit worthy. It doesn't mean that they aren't going to be able to fulfill their obligations, but they may have a moment in time where they intervene in in a process. And that some of the ways that we interpret data, particularly around people who are lower income, are pretty flawed. Um, as, right, and we're bringing all of those analog biases to the interpretation right. of that data. I agree with you that 
Um, we already have a flawed system. And will using the social graph as an analytical tool help or hurt that? Well, that's up to us. It's really a question of how evolved we are as humans. Right. The data becomes um, somewhat secondary if the people using the data aren't ethical. Ultimately, um, the ways in which we use it is as important as what we develop because humans are brilliant and we can develop almost anything if given enough time. We're about to crack the genetic code. There's something called CRISPR, which is going to make uh, gene editing incredibly simple and terrifyingly so, frankly. Um, so we have the ability to do lots of things, but do we have the ethical capabilities to use them well? So how do we start to enforce that? Well, you know, I think that there are questions of enforcement, but there's also a question of simply surfacing conversations that need to be had. You know, I, I am writing about the social security issue because I think that there's a whole conversation that's simply not being had. It's like right in front of our faces, but it seems perhaps trivial or simplistic to some people to discuss how we use the social security number, but we need to have that conversation. The same thing with genetic editing. You know, I mean, it's going to be a huge issue, but it hasn't really gone wide yet. You know, mm -hmm. it's something that people in the science community are looking at, but everyone needs to think about this because when we look at the history of, you know, eugenics and the history of Henrietta Lack, whose cells were used to produce cell lines, um, you know, without her family's knowledge initially. You know, we, it's just ethical questions. I'm, I'm certainly no Luddite. I'm very pro technology, pro science, pro data, but I'm also pro ethics. And, right. and I think that the way to reach ethical decisions is to surface the issues when you still have time to debate them. So in general, do you feel like our data literacy is improving or eroding? I don't know that it exists. Really? For wide, in a widespread sense. Because, you know, first of all, a lot of people have been made to feel afraid of math. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have been made to feel af not only afraid of statistics, but also suspicious. Because a lot of numbers are kind of gamed and used for political purposes and and – and that whole idea that you can dispute the issue but not dispute the facts becomes somewhat more difficult when you talk about things like uh, things that are really important, like fiscal projections. Like when you look at the future uh, of the U.S. government revenue and you're trying to project what you can spend in the budget responsibly, then you're not just looking at a real number that exists in a moment. You're also looking at projections, and those are always open to right. interpretation. So it takes a lot of work. What I'm saying is it, it, you know, it's worth it as a citizen and as a person to invest in understanding this stuff, but it does take work. And I, and I hope that more people take the time to learn a little bit about how to interpret some of these numbers. When Nate was on this show a while back, uh, I was kind of surprised at his answer to this question, which was basically saying he feels like the conversation about privacy and around data literacy is moving in a, in a hopeful direction. He pointed mm. to things like Yik Yak, which is a conversation app, uh, a network that is sort of staking its ground as protecting your data and your privacy. And there's been all these pitched battles over like terms of service agreements, which yeah. are, you know, incredibly complex. But then Facebook has been taken to court and and, and they've had to relent to some extent. And, mm -hmm. and so do you feel like at least we're moving towards companies being pushed to be more upfront about their their use of data? Well, the, there's always 
there there are always a matrix of different players. So you have privacy advocates, many of whom are doing a great job of surfacing questions. Um, you have corporations, some of whom are acting very ethically and others of which are, are you know, either seemingly oblivious to or openly flouting some of the, the conventions that they, they said they would agree to. Many companies say, we're going to do this, you know, with privacy, but then they do something else, whether it's intentional or not. Snapchat did it. Um, you know, their their data didn't disappear the way they said it would. Facebook did it, et cetera. And there have been various covenants around that. But I think that still when it comes down to how individuals navigate the world of data, there's something that's now called data breach fatigue, where people right. people just get the notice like you've been hacked and they're just like, whoosh. Right, and it goes back to where we started, that yeah. notion of this amorphous harm, you know, right. in the way yeah. we're talking about. And, and I think that there are certain things that individual human beings can't do. Some of this is going to be litigated in the courts. Some of this is going to be um, a dialogue between privacy advocates and companies that keep large amounts of data. But there, there are other things that should be very much a large public debate that I don't think reach that point because they're viewed as too... Um, too esoteric, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But of course, the response from a Facebook or an app or whoever is that we're providing you know, services. We're using this data to give you something that time and time again, people kind of show that they want. So the way that Facebook is using facial recognition has led – and Google Photos is using facial recognition has led to this kind of amazing new way to organize and store photos, which is – I, you know, it's a yeah. it's a good service, and I noticed uh, in the new iOS when I pulled out my phone over the weekend and I started searching for someone's phone number and didn't have it, the iOS went into my email and suggested their phone number by having scraped it from an email that was sent yeah. like eight months ago and said, oh, is this the guy you're looking for and is this his phone number? And it was, and I had I think that classic mix of. Wait a minute. Yeah. What does this say that they know? But then on the other hand, like, oh, great. Now I have his number. Let right. me call this guy. Yeah. And and believe me, I mean, there's plenty of times that I am grateful for everything from social apps to certainly like things like e-banking. And, you know, I love the ease of it. Um, but everything <laughs> comes at a price, you know. And, and so yeah. I think it's just about being aware of the price. And, and of course, we can't know in the future. Like I – certainly don't want um, my social graph to be used for financial predictive analytics. But if I really don't want that to happen, I should probably opt out of Facebook now. But there are other compelling reasons for me to be on it. Like I have family in Zimbabwe who right. are thousands of miles away and I get to see pictures of my cousin's kids growing up. And, and I've made a decision, but I've at least made a conscious decision. I feel like I'm pretty well briefed on, you know, what the policies are, what the legal actions have been against the company, what the innovations are the company is working on, and also what it means to me personally. I think we're at the point maybe where, where people understand that, okay, it's scraping my information in order to get me this new fun tool or whatever. But the data that Facebook or whoever needed to collect along the way, and where is that data being used? Not the data that very clearly connects to a service you have now, but just right. that sort of massive collection right. for collection's sake almost. Well, yeah. Right? I mean, nothing is ever deleted. I mean, when you when you delete a photo from Facebook or a post or your entire profile, the data still resides in a data center. There's 
you know, um, these rooms with exabytes of data, you know, just An to exabyte hold... is a is a billion gigabytes. Yeah, by the way. exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's and 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 there which two... probably fits on a thumb drive at this point. Well, not know, quite, the... <laughs> not quite. But there's two billion photos a day uploaded to Facebook. Right. So, so Facebook could delete all the ones that you delete, but it doesn't. Right. And there are, there are compelling reasons for it. I'm not saying that it's just creepy reasons, but there then there also becomes when you talk about things like legal subpoenas. Realize that if you've deactivated your account, your whole history is still on there. It's on a server somewhere. Right. And the collection is not, we need this information for this specific project. It's, we may need this. I mean, yes. this, is, this reminds me of the NSA, right? Yeah, Which was very absolutely. much not doing targeted collection in the way that they, well, A, claimed, and B, I think some people would be more comfortable with, but it was more, let's just suck everything up and hope that somewhere in there yeah. is the thing that we were, we're looking for, or somewhere in the future we'll, we'll, we'll use this in some way. Yeah, it makes Minority Report look really, really old and dated at this point. I, I, I don't know. With Minority Report, for me, I'm continually just like... The stuff in that movie keeps coming true. I oh, no, it does. Like but I'm, I'm saying yeah. it's like, right, it's, we're it's, already it's, there. Yeah, we're kind right. of the future is now right. sort of a situation. Exactly. I want to talk a little bit about the notion of identity and the identity we have within us as we walk around and the identity that's created by our data and right. uh, all those buzzers that go off when we generate yeah. data each day. Do you, do you think about that? And do you, how, how close, how close are those? For yeah. You? Well, I, I call it the cloud self, you know, because there's your physical self, your tangible self, but then there's this nimbus of data, which is in the cloud for the most part. It's also on servers, of course. But that nimbus of data grows increasingly complex and interconnected, like you were talking about. So your banking data may now connect to your college and university data, which connects to your financial data, which connects to your social grid. And so the, the nimbus of activity that is your cloud self is in, in some ways deeper and more precise than your analog self. Mm -hmm. Your cloud self can often remember exactly what you were having for lunch 15 Tuesdays ago because delivery.com sent it to you and there's a record of exactly what you got. I can probably just tell you that it was Indian food yeah. from the place on Bedford, but that just happens to be me yeah. and my habits. But yes, yeah. I understand your but point. But you know what I mean? It's like, so, so there's, <laughs> there's a flood of information yeah. that is part of your cloud self. But what is happening is also that that cloud self is resolving itself into these connections. So like when we talked about the connections on the, the social graph, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's all of these systems that we're plugged into, whether it's banking, whether it's, you know, your employer, et cetera. And, and increasingly there is, um, there are transfer points between different forms of data and, but and how accurate is your is your cloud self? The way totally it depends. Like I saw a completely erroneous uh, address. I was I had to fill out a form with like a bunch of my past addresses mm -hmm. recently, and I pulled up one of my credit reports and I saw a completely erroneous address on it. And in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, I should fix that. You know, it's not hurting me, right. but it is completely wrong. So so you know, there's I think that over time. A lot of the data does get better, but there are also cases. I've had several friends who've had 
serious identity theft, not putative identity yeah. theft, but mortgages taken out in their names. Uh, there's an increasing trend of false IRS filings, people using your social security number to file uh, for tax refunds. So either by accident or through tampering, there is a lot of false information in the cloud. And I think something that's also coming up is like there has to be data hygiene, like in the same way that you floss your teeth to make sure that you you don't have rotting gums. Or use of, your fancy toothbrush. Yes, I use, my, I use my very fancy digital toothbrush. But you have to kind of like get in there in the cracks of Clean your 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 like messy data and, and get the, the icky bits out, you know? Yeah. It's funny. The, the, I, I have felt that the, that the phrase identity theft is actually really – helpful and was actually weirdly prescient because when it came along, it wasn't like information theft. It was identity theft and it yeah. really did put in the public this notion that your data is your identity yes, and that we should maybe start to think of them as connected for better and and for worse. Mm -hmm. My identity is very much about my activities and what I do and what I like and all of that stuff. That's kind of who I am and, and the, the connections I have. And so my digital self should reflect that as well. Now, if I'm remembering this correctly, doesn't Tom Cruise get in an eye transplant in Minority Report to know. avoid some censors. I think that may have been the case, but there's <laughs> also sounds right. But there's also the question of biometric identity, and right. in the U.S., for many reasons, that seems to be a bridge too far for most people. Like we don't like, except in extremely mm -hmm. high security situations, we don't like the idea of having retinal scans. We right, except for how did I, how do I log into my phone? Right. Yes. Yeah. Now you we're know, getting used to the, to that the fingerprint. That slope is getting slippery. Yeah. But some some countries are much more sensitive to that type of data, like I would argue many European countries. Mm -hmm. And some countries like India, um, in India, I, I went to visit and we had an audience with some of the architects of their biometric identity strategy. And there are so many people who are illiterate and there are so many different scripts, not just languages, but alphabets like right. there's there's over a dozen alphabets i think used in india and so it becomes very difficult to use even a paper identity document and so they were much more embracing of biometric identity so that's another fork in the road we'll see like five years from now um maybe we'll all be getting retinal scans the one thing we can decide on is that we should do like a screening of minority reports yeah absolutely and invite people and watch it together exactly and, and talk about that so look, we didn't even talk about the election and we didn't I even know. talk about the future of the news industry and how advertisers are using your data. But uh, this is not going to be the last time you're on What's the Point. And of course, you're going to be writing. Are you writing every week? Uh, that is the goal. Yeah. That okay. is the goal. So you'll be on the site and you'll be on the podcast. And um, I'm really looking forward to, to working with you. So for yeah, Ashley, thanks, thank Jody. you for joining us. Appreciate it. You can find video of my conversation with Farai Shadea and her first pieces for the website at 538.com slash podcasts. Can you tell I'm excited that she's writing for us now? What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel with help from Jordan Shulkin and Lois St. Jacques. Sarah Patterson is our intern. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. Several of the uh, upcoming episodes for this show are drawn from ideas you've sent my way, so please keep them coming. You're very smart out there. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the Song Exploder podcast. Check it out on iTunes. While you're in iTunes, look up What's the Point. 
and throw us a rating and a review. The more ratings and reviews, the more we go up the iTunes charts. The more we go up the iTunes charts, the more people discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon.